0: I'm here today with Dr. Ashley Polasek, who is a historical martial artist, something of a ninja, we'll get into exactly what that means later, and an expert in Sherlock Holmes. She teaches bolognese swordsmanship and was a consultant on the first Enola Holmes movie. So without further ado, Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So whereabouts in the world are you?
1: I live in upstate South Carolina, but I travel for work probably two out of three days of the year, so
0: uh,
1: you find me at home today, but I could be anywhere.
0: Right. Yeah. I think you were in the UK recently.
1: Yes. I work in the theatre, so uh, we were involved in two shows at Chichester Festival Theatre this summer, so I was there for a long time.
0: Lovely. Okay. We're going to get into some of your theatrical stuff in a little bit. Um, So. So let's start with the swords, um, and then then ease into the other other things. So, how did you get into historical martial arts? Uh,
1: I'm. I've always been a very unathletic person. Uh, I only have vision in one eye, so anything that involves somebody throwing a ball at me, the ball's just gonna hit me in the face. Uh, okay. So I kind of always thought being athletic was pretty hopeless for me. Uh, I started sort of seeing turning 30 on the horizon, and I felt like I needed to start doing something physical just for my health. Uh, I had done sport fencing in college, which I really enjoyed. I started searching around locally to see if there was maybe a sport fencing academy that I could get into, and I stumbled upon uh, the website of a place called Sword Carolina, which said they did historical martial arts. I'd never heard of it before, but they offered a free intro lesson. Uh, so I went to it and at the end of my intro lesson I signed up for you know the whole the whole thing. I just loved it so Excellent.
0: much. Excellent. So so we'll start it out as a I've gotta get moving for my health turned into Ah, sorts of cool. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, sorts are cool that is like the one thing that connects pretty much all of my guests together. We can all agree on that one thing. Many of us disagree on many other things, but no, nope, we all agree swords are cool. Um, so when did you start?
1: I've been doing it now for maybe eight years. I think 2014 okay. is when I started, okay. beginning of the year.
0: Uh, so what did you start with, sword Uh
1: So this Sword Carolina, the school that I joined, uh, mm-hmm. does Lichtenauer style. Uh, so we started with longsword, uh, and they would – Primarily do longsword. That's um, you know where they started all their their students at the beginning. And then if you wanted to join other classes to try other things, they would sort of branch out a little bit. Um, so I dabbled a little bit here and there with um, messer for a little while. I dabbled a little bit. We did you know played around with. Uh, with pole weapons I was never very good at that again the depth perception thing being a problem the farther sure. my opponent gets from me the less likely I am to be able to to hit them reasonably um, but mostly I started out with with german style longsword
0: okay um you liked it didn't like it i mean i know I you don't, that's not what we do mostly now so
1: yeah, I, I liked it. I think it's a great place to start, particularly if you're um, you doubt your own kind of body control and your strength, just because you mm-hmm. have the leverage of both both arms. Um, so right. kind of anybody can do it.
0: Yeah, that's one of the common misconceptions. Like people think, oh, rapiers are super light because they're just like these one you hold them in one hand and it's fine. Oh, and okay. long swords must be really big and heavy, but it's entirely the other way around. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know when you've got two hands on the thing, it weighs half as much.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, and so I found that I could I could do it fairly well. I started competing in longsword within, I think, six months of of starting my training. Started competing okay. in. No one told me that like joining an open longsword tournament when you've only done six months of training is like a scary thing to do. And because nobody told me I probably oughtn't, no one discouraged me from doing it. I just did it. Uh, and I did really well and found that I really liked that. I'm not actually a naturally competitive person, but I enjoyed kind of the, the personal test of that. So I've continued to train longsword. Uh, mm-hmm. but a few years in, I, I wanted to try, um, Italian style and I wanted to try side sword, which looked to me like a something that was quite, beautiful and graceful. And I was, I was tempted by that to begin with. Um, and so I started my school, even though they didn't do any Italian, uh, the, the owner of the school, Aaron Schober, uh, is very encouraging. And he basically said, great, here's a night for you to, to do this. If you want to start a study group or you want to teach, uh, he joined my class to be supportive wow. and we started That's having, a good teacher. he's, he's great. Yes. He's very good at what he does. And, um, we started out with about six regulars and Ooh. I'd work on a lesson beforehand and work on the vocabulary and, you know, and build what I wanted to do with a training day, um, And then we'd all come in and when we'd work on a technique, we'd troubleshoot because when you're doing it on your own, you kind of don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. What makes sense in your head sometimes doesn't make sense when another person is standing in front of you. Uh, And so we kind of worked through things together. So I've now been doing that for uh, maybe five, five or six years.
0: So what sources are you working with? I mean, using translations or using the original Italian
1: uh, I don't speak Italian. So okay. uh, the the I think that the the material in the Bolognese sources is actually really accessible. Uh, so primarily, depending on whether we're working on single sword or whether working on sword and companion. So I've done units where we'll go, okay, the mm-hmm. next four months we're doing sword and dagger or the next four months we're doing um, sword and rotella. Uh, so we started out with uh, Marazzo and we've worked in some Mancholino as well. Uh, a little bit of the anonymous but um, mostly those
0: Whose translations are you using?
1: Uh, I was using um, I'm going to mispronounce people's names horribly I'm sure, but uh, the uh, Jarek Swanger Jarek
0: Jarek Swanger, yeah, there we go from
1: (laughs) Marazzo, yeah, excellent translation, Um, and Tom Leone's um,
0: uh, Mancholino Excellent, okay and do you find that the sources complement each other?
1: I do or think so. do they contradict so. I mean, each other at all? I'm the sort of person that thinks that contradictions actually are useful. So I kind of don't mind when two sources use different terms for things or one recommends that you, you move in this particular way and another one would suggest a different way to work. I find that those actually help me. um be not so monolithic in my interpretations, mm-hmm. because the same thing is true with you know the the longsword stuff, which I wasn't dealing directly with the manuscripts in my longsword training. I was getting it secondhand, and I would find that things that were being taught, for instance, by a six-foot-four man didn't work for me uh, <laughs> sure. as a, a, a five-foot-four woman, and it wasn't because I was doing it wrong per the manuscript. It was because I needed to kind of reassess what they were actually trying to say. And I find right. that the contradictions such as they are in the Bolognese sources are kind of similar. You can, you can reconcile them or you can view them as
0: options. Yeah, and to me, it's always a red flag when an instructor's students are all the same size and shape that they are, mm. right? Because if the way you're teaching only works for people who are your size and shape, then what you're teaching isn't really an art, it's a specific way of winning fencing matches that works for you.
1: Yes, it becomes a game instead of an art. Yeah. Um, And I I have to say, and one of the the kind of great things about Sword Caroline. I'm gonna brag on them a lot here, I'm sure. No, please uh, (laughs) do. Is that uh, the number of women who train at Sword Carolina is actually really high. The school is owned by a man Mm -hmm. Um, and and primarily run by him. But he is happy to, like he did with me, if someone comes to him and says, gosh, I really want to study this. So there's a a couple um, who started training around the same time I did, and they wanted to look at uh, Sword and Buckler. And so he said, great. He did the same thing for them that he did for me with Bolognese and said, Here's, an, here's a here's a night for you. We'll advertise your class. He joins the class to make sure that, you know, they feel like they have somebody to, to talk to who has really good fundamentals, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they would work things out. And so, um, other Ashley is the other Ashley at Sword Carolina. She teaches there a lot too. And so, you know, we're senior members of the school and there are as many women training there now as men which is, wow. which is really, I think an impressive thing.
0: Okay when I was running my school in Helsinki the best we ever got to, to was about 35 maybe 40% women out yeah. of that yeah. and, and that's sort of over time so okay what do you think makes the difference? How What, what makes the school particularly good for women to attend? Why do women stick?
1: I think one, it always helps to see women in leadership roles and to be, oh, and yeah. to see, uh, women being elevated. So the fact that Aaron instantly made space, uh, he didn't say, Oh, that's what you want to do. Okay. Well, you know, give me three months to, to get a heads up on it. And then I'll start a class for it. He said, great. Here's space for you to do it and you be in charge. Um, and on top of that, even behind the scenes things, he went, that makes you an assistant instructor. Instructor. So he remitted all my fees. He said, "Now that you're you're teaching a class, you're you're an instructor, and um, you know the the support. And then when someone comes into the class and sees that a woman is in charge of that right. space um, and is being respected by the person who's the owner of the space, right. uh, I think that culture makes a lot of difference." Um, there's also a, I mean, it has to do with club culture too. The culture at Sword Carolina is not very bro-y. It's, you know, we okay. tend to be, a, um, we're serious about what we do, but we tend to be laid back and silly. We like socializing with each other. All of that helps. We're all welcome in the same spaces. Um, we encourage each other. There's never been a, a point where I felt like, um, I was being talked down to in any way, uh, or okay. it wasn't being accommodated. If I said something like, for instance, um, there are certain, uh, techniques that t- specifically to do with footwork, where as a woman, you learn that actually your legs hang, your bones hang different from your pelvis, right? right. And sure. so things that make sense in terms of footwork for men actually don't work for women because- We're physically built different, our blower bodies are structured differently and so our footwork doesn't match. So instead of saying, no, you have to do it this way, finding ways to make it work or saying, that's great. You should probably talk to some of the other women here about that and see if you can help them because maybe they don't understand that thing about themselves. Those sorts of parts of the culture are really important.
0: That's fascinating. Can you be specific about something to do with footwork that is different for women?
1: Sure uh, so it has to do I think a lot with um, moving straight forward and mm-hmm. moving to the side. So if you look at a male skeleton, which is the one we all have in our mind because it's the one that they studied in anatomy classes, right right your thigh bones hang directly you know from your hips straight down. that is your yeah. legs are, are are perpendicular to the ground uh, because women have wider hips, our legs actually are our, our thigh bones. So your, in. your
0: femurs fall that's a correct. slight V.
1: So, that's right. Ah. So women's knees are going to be closer together uh, just naturally. And it's going to also affect um, how you can turn out your feet or not. So, for instance, sure. I'm much more likely to be able to do a nice uh, cross step with my mm-hmm. front foot in front of my back or have my uh, feet both turned out. Um, those things are more natural for me because of the way my my bones hang. Uh, right. They're going to be less natural for a man, but mm-hmm. it's going to be more natural for a man to be able to, um, you know, keep his knees safe, for instance, <laughs> when he's right, away, right.
0: Okay, yeah, because women's knees will tend to pull inwards when they lunge. That's correct, That's and correct. that is dangerous for the knee. That's right fascinating okay oh there's a slightly awkward pause here which it shouldn't be awkward at all it's just you said something that is making me really really think about something that i'm really really interested in and it's probably terrible podcast behavior to kind of leave these dead sizes but that is fascinating and i have to go away and really think about it for a while okay it's just uh, one
1: of those things where like it's it's not your body so it never occurred to you right and because we don't we don't study female anatomy specifically. Generally, if you've got any elementary anatomy, it's a we we have historically viewed the male body as default.
0: Yeah, although um, that is that is absolutely true, and um, I don't know if you... have you read Caroline Criado Perez's book Invisible Women? No, I haven't. Oh my god! Okay, but this I'm podcast write it down. exists. This podcast exists because of that book. It made me so cross, right? <laughs> um, because. Basically, she is a data scientist, and she has produced a whole lot of data scientific study stuff which, that demonstrates all sorts of areas in which, um, because the default is male, um, women's needs get sidelined. So, mm-hmm. for, in- for instance, um, car safety, the crash test dummy that they use is default male. And so cars get a five star safety rating where if you put a female sized dummy in, it would only get a three star safety rating. So women are driving around in cars that they've been told are safe, but are not actually safe for them. Right. Right. And so women are more likely to be killed or injured in a car crash. Right?
1: Neat. Just one of the extra
0: bonuses. Right, exactly, exactly. And (laughs) and um yeah, so I've had, you know, some hundreds of female students in my classes. And and what you're saying about how female hips work, yeah, it's, they're obviously different. Um, but it's also true that across the spectrum of kind of human pelvis arrangements, right? I mean, I've had male students who've had very odd pelvis and femur arrangements, which means, mm-hmm. for example, they will never ever be able to do a classic squat with their feet parallel. It's simply mm-hmm. physically impossible for them because the bones jam together. Yep. Right, um, and yeah, just thinking about the the problem with the historical fencing system is we have this model given to us by um, the historical source that we're looking at which if, I mean, if you happen to be perfectly proportioned according to the Vitruvian man, um, then certain things they say actually work in terms of, you know, how your lunge length should relate to your arm length, should relate to your sword length and so on. Right. But seeing as almost nobody has those proportions, we always have to adjust things. So, what we're talking about seems to me to be part of that same process of taking this theoretical ideal art and adapting it for the students we happen to have
1: absolutely and it's it's none of this is to say oh you can't do it right no, 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 all of it not. is to say that exactly as you say none of us have the ideal proportions whatever those happen to be you know according to Renaissance art Um right. So it just, it requires an adaptability. You know, if you view it and you go, you're not doing the art unless you're doing exactly this. You know, if you if you uh, open up one of the Bolognese sources and you try to recreate um, the illustrations, for instance, which right. lots of people like to try to do. Um, which we do. Yeah, I do that. Which we do. And there's a benefit in doing that because you want to feel certain things like, Oh, until I tried to do that, holding a rotella, for instance, I was I realized that I wasn't holding the rotella up with the right muscles until I tried to recreate those images. And I went, oh, actually, I'm now holding the rotella up with my lower back muscles. That works a right. lot better. Right? Yeah. Um But at the same time. Moment to moment, you're not always going to be perfectly recreating those illustrations because I don't look like the person in those illustrations and I'm not built like the person in those illustrations. It doesn't mean I can't do the art. It just means I have to have a better awareness of my own body, which is kind of why I went into this in the first place.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And and speaking of like changes in in specific bodies, you say you're missing the vision in one eye. Um, How does that... I mean, I know the theory of binocular vision and depth perception and whatnot, but how does that affect your swordsmanship training, and how do you get around it?
1: So, uh, I've never had vision in my right eye, so I don't no. know how it would be different. So, I have not. I don't have any comparison. I don't know what the world looks like to you. Uh, sure. But uh, essentially, for me, if things are within. You know, five or six feet of me, I understand depth pretty well. If something is free-flowing through the air, so like I said, if a ball is thrown, it's just going to hit me. Because once it's left somebody's hand and it's now in the air, I can't judge if it's two feet away from me or ten feet away from me.
0: Sure. Uh,
1: With swordsmanship, I have the benefit of knowing how tall I am and how long my sword is. I can judge pretty easily how tall my opponent is, and have a sense of how long their sword is. So I more or less understand the distance between us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does mean that I have to be a little bit more concerned with, for instance, taking a thrust to the face where I thought you were six inches farther away from me than you were. But let's right, face it, yeah. we all we've all taken that <laughs> thrust. Uh, yes. <laughs> I was at Probably the chiropractor just this morning. <laughs> yes, exactly. We we're familiar with that one where we we're, we we yeah. just we were about to execute the perfect technique and and now we've you know been thrust right through the mouth hole. Like you just go, oh, yeah. well, that wasn't that wasn't it. Uh, but you know, being a little bit more aware of that. But because I've always had this vision problem, I tend mm-hmm. to be more aware of my surroundings that way anyway. Um, the other downside is that really the worst part about it is the loss of peripheral vision on my right side. So ah,
0: okay. um, if
1: someone is throwing a uh, you know a swerve cow to my right side, yeah, I might not see it coming until a little bit later than somebody else would. Uh, so right. it h- has to do with. Watching distance and being aware of some of the other mitigating factors that, that you can do to try to deal with that. Train so, train that right block, <laughs> uh, that right parry as well as you can to try to, to watch out for it.
0: Yeah, so so your opponents in tournaments absolutely should be throwing strikes at your right-hand side. Yes, they should. They should,
1: <laughs> and, and they often do. I, I, you know, I don't. I don't make a secret of it. So usually, no, sure. you know, if I'm if I'm fighting in tournaments against people I fought before, and that's not uncommon, um, then they probably know that I don't have vision there. Though that's probably not something that they have the brain power to be paying attention to going into a fight. Right sure. where you're thinking the the hundred things you've trained, you now do the six you remember when you're in a tournament. Yeah. Uh, to, to have brain space to go, oh, but she can't see out of her right eye, so I'm going to do this to her. Um, they may land the strike and then go, well, I'm going to try that again because it worked. Uh, that's probably the worst that's going to happen.
0: Well, until you're up against serious competitors. Yes. They absolutely will deliberately construct their training coming up, knowing they're going to be fencing you. They will be They will have studied your fights, know everything about you, and... Construct their entire approach to that particular bout based on what they know about you. Um,
1: I don't tend to compete quite at that level.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I actually had a sudden thought, right? Mm. Um, One of the difficulties that is presented um, to you when you start training to fight in armor is loss of peripheral vision, Mm. right? Because basically, if you've got your visor down, suddenly your peripheral vision becomes tunnel vision, and you really can't see anything out to the sides at all. Now, if you're used to that, right, you would just have to get used to loss of peripheral vision on your left-hand side, but that might actually be an advantage. And tell me if this is a good idea or not. Because armor should be custom made, right? If your right eye isn't doing you any good anyway, you could have a seriously weird helmet with no ocular on the right-hand side, which will <laughs> really freak, freak out. the fuck out of your opponent's.
1: good idea great idea done (laughs) if anybody's listening who does custom helmets be in touch
0: well there are plenty of armorers out there who could build you something like that but it's probably only worth doing if you're actually going to get into the armored combat stuff because it's really expensive
1: yeah it is I've thought about it uh, just really in the same the same part of my brain that goes swords are cool that looks Mm -hmm. pretty I'll buy one of those is going, but you should do armored combat because it's cool. Uh, I don't have the disposable income for it right now, but talk to me again in two years.
0: Okay. Uh, I, well, I'm, I'm very curious to know what you're going to be doing in the next two years to probably double your <laughs> your disposable income because that's what it would take to take up art.
1: Yeah. Well, that was a career change I made last year. So you should be right. Uh, I used to be a uh, an English professor, right. lecturer, uh, mm. And you can't, you know, you don't have two coins to rub together at the end of the paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, English uh, lecturers at universities do not buy armor generally.
1: No. Um, but I, I now work in theater and uh, really sort of unlikely trajectory of being plopped in at really the top tier of professional commercial theater. Uh, so okay. doing what? I run the business of a playwright. So he writes the plays and I do everything else.
0: Oh, that is fascinating.
1: It's super fun.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, This is completely not on any on my list of questions, but do do you mind digressing a minute? Um, No, sure. so, So, okay. What exactly do you have to do? And what... I mean... How on earth does a playwright these days actually make enough money to have someone to run their business?
1: Ah, so this playwright, his name is mm-hmm. Ken Ludwig, and he's somebody who already has a really, I mean, before we met, he'd had 40 years of successes. So he's had six okay. shows on Broadway, seven on the West End. Oh, uh,
0: hey, wow. Anything, called, anything I've heard of? Uh,
1: Crazy for You, the musical Crazy for oh, You. yeah? Big okay. tap dancey thing. Yeah, he wrote that. Yeah, yeah. uh,
0: Right. So, OK.
1: Yeah. Which is, by the way, in its last uh, couple performances at Chichester right now, it's been getting very good reviews. So that's what I was there working on. Okay. Um, so he's had a long career. He's one of the most produced playwrights in America every year. So we have mm-hmm. this really robust uh, regional theater um, network as well as amateur stock student and everything. Uh, so. Any given night, you could go somewhere in America and see one of his plays up somewhere.
0: Right. And most of those people are paying for the use of his work.
1: All of those people are paying for the use of his work. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's fantastic. Well, yeah. So depending
1: <laughs> on the size of the theater and the number of, of uh, um, shows they want to do, you mm. know, whether it's a professional or an amateur theater, that will determine how much um, revenue he makes from it. But if, you know, somebody comes and says... Uh, As they have, oh, we want to do a big production in X country touring Mm -hmm. this particular show, they'll pay up front a a pretty considerable sum to do that. And if he has something like 30, 35 plays and he's continuing to write more plays. And so when things that's just it's a lot of stuff to manage and he has other things he also wants to do. So he wants to write a book that is about he writes Comedies. All of his, his mm-hmm. plays are stage comedy. So he wants to write a book about stage comedy. Well, he can't write the next play and write the book on stage comedy at the same time. But I have a Ph.D. in English, so I can work with him to, you know, jolly along the, the book uh, while he's right. still writing plays. Um, and, you know, it ends up still being his book and it ends up being a book in his voice with his thoughts. Um, sure. But a lot of the grunt work I've done. Uh, which is good because right. writing is, you know, writing is nonfiction. Writing scholarship is what I'm good at.
0: Right. Okay. Oh, there are so many places I need to go for. Firstly, how did you get that job?
1: Uh, I got Not that, not
0: that job. I want it. I'm, I'm happy doing my <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh,
1: I got that job. Um, first of all, it's a job that, as far as I know, doesn't exist anywhere else. I've invented sure. it for myself. Uh, yeah. And it came about because... Uh, Ken and I are both members of the same Sherlock Holmes society, the Baker street Irregulars, And right. he was a, um, he gave a lecture for the Baker street Irregulars, regulars, mm, maybe four or five years ago at our, our annual meeting in New York. And I was familiar with his work. Um, he came to give a lecture cause he'd written a Sherlock Holmes play. My PhD is in Sherlock Holmes adaptations. So I was particularly right. interested in it. Um, And he mentioned during the course of his talk in passing another author that he likes that I also love P.G. Woodhouse. As it happened, I just edited a book on P.G. Woodhouse. So uh, I went up to talk to him after his lecture. I gave him a copy of the book, which he then read on his way on his way home uh, to Washington, D.C. And we struck up a friendship kind of on mutual love of literature he started trusting me with version with sort of drafts of his plays and earlier and earlier parts of their, um, their process. Mm-hmm. And I would give him feedback. Well, that's something I do professionally. My side hustle is, is consulting <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> on, sure. on stage and screen. Uh, so it kind of hit an inflection point where it was like up until a certain point, it's a friendship and up in, yeah. and beyond that point, it's a job. Um, yeah. And, you know, kudos to him. He said, good, let's make it a job. I want not only your consulting, I want all the other things you can do. Um, so now I work for him full time.
0: Right. And and do you actually manage the business?
1: Yes. So, uh, we kind of do that in partnership right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but more and more, I kind of take over Day to day running, he has a team of people who have very specific duties. So he has a manager who's in charge of licensing. He has an agent who's in charge of contracts. He has a press mm-hmm. agent. Um, but I'm basically like a a second brain for him. So I yeah. h- help him when he's stuck on plays. He can talk through things with me because I have this you know background in literature that's helpful. Um, I travel with him. So if he's going to go, he doesn't work obviously on all his plays. But if there's a world premiere. He's on on the ground, uh, you know, making sure that edits happen on plays, um, so that the first production of a new play is as good as it can possibly be. Uh, or if there's a big revival, or there's a European premiere, um, something like that, or a plays going up on the West End, or a plays going up on Broadway, we travel to places to 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 be part of those productions. Um, so in I sort of shift into. Uh, I'm actually credited on productions as creative associate. So if there's a new all production right. like that, I'm in, I'm in the playbill as creative associate. So I work with him, um, on script stuff, but I also sort of liaise with other parts of the production. So the design team, the cast, um, the administration of the theater, all of that kind of stuff, uh, which is great. I mean, we've been in the UK all summer. We've been, uh, we've got a play going up. It's in rehearsal in Houston right now. Um, it's just, we were in New York for an opera that he
0: wrote. Cause why okay. not? So yeah. Well, why not? Yeah. And, and clearly yes, you travel more than I do, which is unusual.
1: It's, it's a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah. But fun. from the sound Yes.
1: I love traveling. Yeah. Yeah. If I, if I wasn't happy to just kind of get on a plane and go somewhere, um, and, and be gone for a week or two at a time, uh, it would not be a good job for me.
0: Right, and you mentioned your PhD is in adaptations of Sherlock Holmes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, okay, there are several questions there. Um, <laughs> but the, the first is, okay, so what you're actually studying isn't so much the original texts it's the adaptations of those texts and perhaps how they relate to the texts and to each other. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. Something like that. So, um, what I'm interested in is the process of adaptation itself. So how, how a text becomes another text in a different medium. And particularly I like, um, the reason Sherlock Holmes is so interesting apart from just being a Sherlock Holmes nerd Um, I'm interested in texts in multiplicity. That is the same text that's been adapted a lot of times over a long period of time into lots of different media and how all of those texts interrelate. You know, Sherlock Holmes is the most adapted human character in all of literature, um, and you can find him in so many different versions, and yet they're all Sherlock Holmes. So what does, you know, uh, a reanimated, pre-cryogenically frozen character in the 22nd century have in common with a mouse and a dog. A gnome.
0: Don't forget the gnome. A gnome.
1: <laughs> a gnome. Sherlock, there, there, Sherlock, Sherlock. Love Sherlock
0: yeah. gnomes. love yeah. gnomes. Um, because what really strikes me is that that's actually very similar to the Historical Martial Arts Project, right? Mm-hmm. Where people like me are doing, in effect... Adaptations of Fiore, Capoferro, or whatever. And there's going to be a relationship between my adaptation as presented in books and videos
1: mm-hmm.
0: versus the actual manuscript. Yes. So, okay, I'm kind of struggling to ask the best question here, but could you just riff on the relationship between your Sherlock Holmes stuff and historical sword fighting?
1: Sure. So a lot of it has to do with understanding the relationship of different contexts. So when you think about an adaptation of a text, like a like a book to a film, for instance, take Mm -hmm. that. That's the most straightforward. When we think of an adaptation, we think it was a book and now it's a movie, right? So you look at that. The book was produced at a particular moment by a particular person for a particular audience um, in a particular system of production. All of that affects what the book actually looks like. Yeah. Fast forward to now we're making a movie. Maybe it's 150 years later. The movie is made by a series of a system of people, but even just say, oh, it's just the screenwriter or it's, oh, it's just the director, but actually it's all this whole constellation of people for a completely different audience who has a whole host of other kinds of cultural references. They expect different things. So for instance, Sherlock Holmes in 1891 dealing with women isn't going to fly in 2022, right? We want a different kind of uh, uh, interpretation of what that relationship would look like. One, because we don't want to be complicit in a misogynistic text, but two, because we don't want our hero to be misogynistic. So we're going to reimagine what he might look like. So looking at that that translation and all and the relationship of all those different contexts why make these particular changes and um also i like the question of persistence so my adaptation studies uses a biological model that is what changes have to occur based on what pressures so that this text continues to be made why does you know We don't keep adapting text one, and yet we keep making a zillion new versions of Sherlock Holmes, right? What is it that Mm -hmm. we can do in historical martial arts to make sure that the texts continue to persist? And part of it is what we were talking about earlier, which is we need to be aware of ourselves. So, for instance, what's different now? Well, we have different ideas about what should constitute safe training. So, obviously, we're going to have to change how we train based on the safety gear that we want. We know that all our martial arts training based on gear is a give and take between dexterity and safety. You're going to have to sacrifice one in order to accomplish the other. Well, where are we going to draw that cutoff line and why? That's part of understanding the adaptation process. Recognizing that our pool of Fighters are, you know, the people who want to study this is much broader and more diverse, for instance, than the pool yeah. of people historically who would have been participating We're there are cost issues. There are geographic issues. You now don't need, for instance, to live near a salle in order to be able to fence. You can go to an online academy where people build resources to help you train solo. Right?
0: right? What a yes, wonderful
1: thing that is.
0: Uh, <laughs> sorry, was that a specific reference or something?
1: It was almost like I read your bio on your website. Oh, um, uh, right. Almost.
0: <laughs> no. uh,
1: so, you know, we have all sorts of, we have access issues that are different. All of these things are going to affect um, our, our ability to understand the text. And it does mean... The thing I hate the most in adaptations that makes me cringe is, oh, well, it's it's not like the book, so it's bad. In adaptation right. studies, we call that fidelity discourse. That is, we judge the success of an adaptation based on its likeness to the, the original yeah. text. I don't find that that's a helpful measure because if you want the book, read the book. Well, we don't have the ability to build a time machine and go back in time and train with the people who wrote the manuscripts we train from. We must do this in the context that we're in now. And what that means is embracing the changes that make it possible now and go, well, you know, oh, it wouldn't work in a real sword fight is the, is the historical martial arts version of that, right? Well, in a real sword fight. Well, I'm not going to be in a real sword fight. <laughs> I don't ever want to be in a real sword fight. What I want to do is I want to train a martial art for fitness and for intellect and for historical preservation and all the other reasons that people do this. But it means that we're going to have to take into account that our modern context is not something we fight against. It's something we have to adapt to. And it has its own set of strengths. Yes. How was that for
0: a riff? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was splendid. That was a really, really good riff. And I, the problem is now I've got like eight other questions that your riff has just sparked off and i am scribbled <laughs> some of them down. And <laughs> the question is, where do we go from here? Um, right. Okay. I've, I've actually written a blog post about movie adaptations of, of things and how a really faithful adaptation of a book very often makes a really shitty movie. Yes. Because it just doesn't, work at that pace
1: no because um, the strengths of written prose are not the same as the strengths of cinema
0: exactly and i have the same issue when some of the content i produce has to be a book because it's all about the kind of the logical and academic structure and the research process and how we create the interpretation um whereas to communicate how you should move video is much more effective Mm-hmm. Right. And I've found ways of also combining those two things. So, for example, having links in books to videos. So yep. you can see what, see the movement as I'm describing it. You can just click on the link and there it is. Um, so. And don't
1: you think Morazzo would have been really happy to have that option?
0: <laughs> I think he would. Um, except one, one major difference between the historical martial arts project and the arts as they were practiced historically is they were actually being taught as state of the art. This is how you kill people with a sword generally. Mm -hmm. And therefore the books were generally speaking, not written for the purpose of teaching people who didn't know it, how to do it. Right. Right. And they were very often written like Fiore's text came out at the end of his life. And in manuscript form so one person would have had it and it wasn't like just displayed across the entire non-existent internet because that would have Mm -hmm. been a security nightmare in the same way that you know modern military techniques and tactics and whatnot um, tend to be kept secret Mm -hmm. Um, so it sort of begs the question why people like Morazzo would have written his book and my feeling is generally that, okay, he was teaching for a living, and yeah, he even discusses the money side of things in his book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think one of the, I've always found the Bolognese stuff very frustrating mm-hmm. because it really isn't clear. Not the way Fiori is clear, and not the way Capoferro is clear, although, you know, Capoferro is a terrible writer and Maratha is a terrible writer, they have that in common. But, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but it's like, to my mind, like, Arte Dalami was kind of um, like a business card. Mm-hmm. See I've so what I'm capable book.
1: of teaching you if you let me in yeah. and hire me.
0: Yeah. But the book, I think, almost deliberately is vague and obscure in places where if he, if he was actually trying to teach people through the book, he wouldn't have been vague or obscure. What Fair. do you think?
1: I think that that's I think that that's fair to say, which is one of the reasons I like training across the several different Bolognese sources, because I think a lot mm-hmm. of them fill in each other's gaps. Um, okay. But I like the puzzle of it. Um, and I, I kind of like that it's not quite so straightforward. All of those appeal to the kind of mind I have, I think. Okay. Um, but I don't I don't disagree with you. Uh, I don't disagree with you. I think that that's a fair assessment. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, now, you, you said earlier that you have like a, a side hustle in consulting. Mm-hmm. So are there a lot of people who, well, I, I guess people who are adapting Sherlock Holmes into another medium might need your services. So what exactly do you do for them?
1: Yeah. So if you think about really any television show or film that involves anything professional. So imagine like a show where there's they have doctors or mm-hmm. lawyers or police. They're often going to have a technical advisor, somebody sure. who's a consultant, who's a professional at that thing, right? Like a, a, a medical a show is going to have yeah. doctors who are technical advisors who say, no, that medicine doesn't make sense. Or this is how you hold this instrument or whatever. Yeah. Um, an adaptation Well, sometimes the people making it, depending on what their particular goals are, now sometimes they don't care, but depending on what their goals are, sometimes they may consult somebody who's a specialist in the text they're adapting, uh, just to try to be precise about, um, what makes sense tonally. Now they're not, they don't care necessarily about total fidelity either, which isn't the kind of advice I give anyway. Um, but, they do care about, one, does it make sense? Does the text make sense? Are we doing something that's just totally boneheaded? Which sometimes you read a script and you go, wow, the person who wrote this script didn't even, like, they don't even have Wikipedia. They did not look up anything. <laughs> uh, and they just want somebody to, to clean it up and say, no, actually, you wouldn't, like, you can't swim the Thames in 1890 in full, like, a full bustle gown.
0: Um, No, you really can't.
1: No, I mean, it's a sewer and you would also drown. Uh, So, you know, so those are the sorts of things that that if you have some, and often, you know, if it's a period piece, their technical advisor will be a historian. Well, if it's a Sherlock Holmes adaptation, uh, having somebody who is a, a specialist in Sherlock Holmes, in particular, particularly Sherlock Holmes adaptations can be helpful. Um So, depending on the mission of the adaptation. So, for instance, I consulted on an episode of a PBS Kids show okay. called Let's Go Luna. So, PBS Kids has an educational mission. And this is a television show that is geared toward sort of four to eight-year-olds and is trying to teach them about social studies, world geography, and a little bit of literature and history. and. Therefore, it was very important to them that they were precise with details when they wanted to do a 15 minute episode on Sherlock Holmes. Right. So, you know, so that that was made sense. Um, The biggest consultation job I've had is being a technical advisor for the first Enola Holmes movie.
0: Can I just interject there? Sure. I have two teenage daughters who are obviously totally unimpressed by everything I say or do. But when I said that I'm interviewing someone who consulted for the Anola Holmes movie, I there was no eye rolling. I actually got some like genuine respect. So.
1: <laughs> like like an emotion they showed an yeah. emotion. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's, I, that's and it wasn't contempt either. God, that's amazing. Oh, you're doing yeah. such a good job. Uh, the The film. I, I was involved in the second one. It's coming out. I can't wait to see it. Um, the first one I thought they did, it's so, they're fun, right? Ah, it's great um, fun. They're, they're really good it. fun. And it's a great character. And the books that they're, that they're adapted from are, are great fun too. And the author, um, is, uh, brilliant and interesting and delightful. Um, that came from a, you know, as so often is the case, my Twitter handle is Sherlock PhD, so I'm pretty easy to yeah. <laughs> to, to pin down. Uh, I got a DM from somebody who was part of the the production back when it was um, they hadn't quite finished. Jack Thorne hadn't finished the first draft of the screenplay yet, but uh, I was hired to read the first draft of the screenplay and provide notes and feedback. Okay, um, so. You know, the way these jobs work is you're paid for a block of time. So, like, yeah. you're paid for a week or two weeks worth of work.
0: Mm-hmm. They give
1: you access to the screenplay for that period of time, and you're expected to provide um, your your detailed feedback, uh, preferably yeah. in writing, so that they yeah. can read it and ignore it in their own time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, you know, and then and then at that point, I no longer have access to the process. So, I saw the film – at the, the yeah. same time everybody else did. Uh, but then I was able to, to watch it and go, okay, they took my advice there, they revised that, they did not take my advice there, they kept that in, that's fine. You can see some of the changes yeah, sure. that get made based on, um, based on the, the information that you provide for them.
0: That must so. be very satisfying.
1: It is until you watch bits of it and you go, oh, I can't no. believe they left that in. That was the thing I thought was most important and you still did that thing. Um, yeah. But, okay. Yeah. But
0: we're not going to ask for the specifics there because that would be okay. I signed an NDA.
1: I can't talk no, about the No, that would be
0: professionally embarrassing and we wouldn't get it. <laughs> but I I should ask, okay, just gut level response. Who is your favorite on-screen homes?
1: Oh, that's really difficult. It, it absolutely depends on what mood I'm in. Um, okay. but for, for aid and comfort, I probably go back to Jeremy Brett most often.
0: That's a good choice. Mm-hmm. I think probably the most accurate of all of them. It's closest I, to the book.
1: Yeah. And it's not even really that I, I liked that it's period. Um, Jeremy Brett is actually not really all that much. We've, we've sort of bought into the idea that he's, that he's like the Holmes in the stories. He's actually a lot more sort of weird and moody and, and gay. Um, but he is... They're so watchable. And Mm. I found that just like Conan Doyle did, Holmes works a lot better in short form than long form. So Conan Doyle wrote four Sherlock Holmes novels, 56 short stories. He works really well in short stories. In long form, you have to find ways to get rid of him so he doesn't solve the problem too soon. And you see, so each of the four novels has a whole chunk where he's missing in the middle because you don't know what to do with him. Um, And for the same reason, I think that Sherlock Holmes on television tends to be more successful as a format than in film. Uh, because in a film, you have to make the stakes so big. It's the one case that made it into yeah. the film. Right. Whereas yeah. on television, you can be episodic the way the stories are and that um, it feels more satisfying when the cases are actually about an individual person who maybe yeah. isn't, you know, the end. Un- it isn't the apocalypse. It isn't going to start World War Three. It's just this person is having a problem. And those tend to be the stories, actually, even with Conan Doyle, that are most enjoyable to read. But they tend to make for the best television.
0: Okay. So what did you think of the Benedict Cumberbatch BBC version?
1: Uh, I love it conceptually. I really enjoyed the episodes um, for the first couple seasons. Mm-hmm. And then when the stories began, it was sort of had the same thing where they had to feel like they kept, they had to keep topping themselves.
0: That's what, that's and what made me think of it. They, they kept raising the stakes bigger and bigger and bigger until Moriarty is somehow in control of the whole of Britain.
1: Yes. And on top of that, the stories became about him. So, right. the stories that I like the best, the Sherlock Holmes stories I like the best are, Client comes in. Client has problem. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson go on adventure and attempt to solve problem, Um, which is how the stories, the the Cumberbatch series began. And then it became that the mysteries were actually about them, where it was like because it was this, you know, hero villain thing, um, the problem that needed to be solved was a problem that he essentially created in the first place. And that found, felt to me self-indulgent and, and not as enjoyable. Um, so I was a little bit frustrated by how it ended, but never frustrated by the quality of the acting, which was always great. Um, mm. And the the beauty of the production, I love the production style on it. I think all of that was, was great.
0: Yeah, I thought I really liked the way Watson's character, you know, he's basically... An adrenaline junkie yeah yeah and it's it's, it's just just the way they, they interact in that first season is absolutely brilliant um yeah but, and okay.
1: i mean bearing in mind that sherlock holmes stories are actually dr watson's stories yes you know it's in his voice and and it's yeah. really his story um and it's his observations of this weirdo <laughs> that he happens to live with <laughs> yeah. uh I always, in any time you can elevate Watson and make him a more interesting character and tell his story, I think the adaptation tends to, to work um, better or is a little at least more interesting.
0: Have you read the George MacDonald Fraser Flashman story where Sherlock Holmes appears briefly?
1: Flashman and the Tiger?
0: That's the one.
1: <laughs> in fact, what I have, have a first of- edition. Yeah.
0: Do you indeed. Oh, my God. Nice. Um, so, okay. So, what I really like about that is, of course, that Sherlock gets it all entirely wrong. Yes. <laughs> it's like, and that, and that's, that's George O'Donnell Fraser just having a really good time at Conan Doyle's expense.
1: That is, well, in in the best Flashman style, yes. Yes. Uh, and it, it's not actually an unusual trope to, to play that idea that actually Sherlock Holmes was, you know, it, the whole reputation is all invented mm. and everything. There's a wonderful, the wonderful film um, without a clue with yes. um, Michael Caine and um, yeah. Ben Kingsley. It's just, just brilliant. You know, the idea that Holmes has been invented, he's he's an invented character and an actor has been hired to portray him, but actually it's Watson. That's the brains. Yeah. And that's, it's fun. It
0: yeah. Uh, so, so overall, mm. um, Not necessarily Sherlock Holmes, but just adaptations in general. Do you have like a a favourite example of a movie or TV series just being made out of a particular source? Like, if you wanted to say this is how it should be done, what example would you use?
1: I would say. Maybe the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings trilogy, would be a good example of that, where such enormous care and devotion was taken over the adaptation.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And certainly if you read Tolkien, the style of Tolkien is not the same as the style of those films, right? Uh, The the kind of language that's used— but Hmm. I think that the films took the same care over what they were as films as Tolkien took over what his books were as books. Uh, so that might be a a good example of that. Um, I mean, I'm kind of a sucker for adaptations in general. I, I'll, I will always go and watch a new three musketeers. I will always go and watch a new pride and prejudice. And, uh, I can always find something to enjoy. And the other thing for me is that the more they get, especially with Sherlock Holmes, the more that get made, it's all job security for me. So I kind of don't, even they're terrible. So like when they went, whoa, Will Ferrell is going to do a Sherlock Holmes movie. Did I take my entire family to go see that movie on boxing day? Yes, I did. Was it a terrible movie? Sure. It was. Did my entire family laugh their asses off? Yup. <laughs> you know, like and and then I go home and go, I wonder if I can write an academic journal article about this movie. Right. That's the kind of sick person I am.
0: So you're still active in the academic field then? I am. Yeah. OK.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, see. So I've a lot of what I do is academic, but the whole kind of formal academic world mm-hmm. with spending months working on writing projects that you never get paid for. Yes. And all of that is just I just I just couldn't do it.
1: Yeah, I think um a couple of things keep me involved in it. One of them is that the um the scholarly community around adaptation studies is a really mm-hmm. welcoming uh and okay. Um, lovely one it the association of adaptation studies is UK based because I did my PhD in Leicester, so um, my the association is UK based and it's because adaptation studies is like the bastard child of a bastard child in terms of discipline like Mm -hmm. you know film studies emerged from Literature studies and literature went, oh, we don't really want anything to do with that. That's not real. And then adaptation studies emerged from film studies and even film study was like, oh, we don't really want that. That's not real. So we're all kind of a bunch of wonderful misfits who are all cobbled together. Everybody always says, well, I'm not an adaptation scholar, but is always how everybody starts their paper, even though here they are at the, you know, premier conference on adaptation studies, because this person is from comparative literature and this person is from television studies and this person is a historian and we all kind of do it uh, a little bit. There aren't that many of us who actually have our degree in adaptation studies. Uh, And because of that, the annual conference is a kind of really... Joyful sharing of of experiences. I, I kind of care less about. Um, I don't need to grind to get lines on my CV, uh, right. so it's just the, the pleasure of reading and writing and sharing now.
0: Right. Well, it's, it's the way a lot of people do historical martial arts too. It's mm-hmm. they put a huge amount of work in, but like right. if you're trying to make a living as a career academic in universities and stuff i think it's a very different thing
1: oh yeah yeah um, and that's and, that's and, what uh, never uh,
0: held any appeal for me it's like too many restrictions
1: yeah it's money. a <laughs> it's a nasty process and it's it, and it's a you know they're <laughs> even going oh well, i want to teach well you know that's all well and good, but the number of tenure track positions, particularly in subjects that are in the humanities, are shrinking and shrinking. And of course, all the good posts are still held by people who are like 800 years old and they've glued themselves into the chairs um, and they're never going to go. So, you know, that's not to discourage people from doing academics, but finding ways to make it um, something that remains joyful instead of something that is soul crushing, which it which it very much can be. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't change my choices. I wouldn't sure. ever, you know, go back and undo doing a PhD in a subject I don't have my job in because it's essential to everything else I do and so much part of who sure. I am. But but the grind of you know academic posts and publish or perish, all that stuff, it's ugly.
0: Yeah, and. It's it's like employment practices that most companies who do them get lambasted about, you know, you know zero-hour contracts and mm-hmm. people working at effectively less than minimum wage and you know, all that sort of stuff. Academia is full of that. It's like – and, you know, there's a few people at the top who seem to be doing okay, but even they – are having to do 10 times as much admin now as they did 20 years ago.
1: But, Guy, you get summers off.
0: (laughs) But you don't. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you were actually paid a proper living wage the whole time and you didn't have to, for example, run a summer school for foreign students at your university during the summer, then, yes, maybe you would get summers off. (laughs) <laughs> yes no, no I would
1: always I had to they would never have enough teaching for me to be full time so the whole time I taught right. as soon as I would have th- the three summer months where I would be like a sailor on half pay Yeah you know I'd get half my half my regular salary and I'm like you know trying That's. desperately to pay your bills on that is it's not a fun yeah. look
0: No no um now complete change of direction um mm-hmm. my dad Mm -hmm. went to Layton County High School. And at Layton County High School in the, it must have been 50s, there was a chap in the year above him who was very good at acting. (laughs) (laughs) So my question, how do you know, and I know you, because one of the great things about running a podcast, as you know, is you get to do research on your guests and stuff that would be creepy, weird stalking if you didn't have a podcast is... You know, necessary. What's it called? Due diligence and research. <laughs> if you do have a podcast, so yes, I found out through creepy internet stalking on Twitter that you are friends with Derek Jacobi. How did I,
1: I am indeed. Yes. Yeah. How? Um, how come? That that emerged from from my theater work. So uh, the the playwright that I work for is based in Washington D.C. And for mm-hmm. a long time, he was on the board of the Folger Shakespeare Library.
0: Oh, really? We have like 120 first folios or something ridiculous.
1: Uh, I th- 82 or 84, something yeah. like that. Yeah, the largest collection of first folios in the world. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's an extraordinary place. Um, and the Folger Shakespeare Library also has Folger Shakespeare Theatre. Um, that theatre, a, a lot of work at that theatre was done by... Um, Richard Clifford. Richard is Derek's partner. Um, mm-hmm. So Richard directed a lot of show, sh- shows at the Folger and he and Ken struck up a friendship while Ken was there. Uh, and of course, you get to know somebody, you get to know their their partner. So um, he and Derek became friends. And then when I started traveling with Ken, Ken started introducing me to his friends. So now every time we go over to London, we uh, we visit with Derek and Richard. They come to our openings when we've, you know, they came to our two openings at Chichester. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, <laughs> the, the point at which you look at, you kind of step back and you look at your life from you know, a distance and go, how am I sitting in Derek Jacoby's house eating takeout Chinese food and playing cards? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's it's one of those moments where you go. I'm not sure how I got here, but I don't want to question it in case it goes away. Uh, and they are Derek and Richard, both the most delightful people in the world. I I love them to pieces. I've I told them that I've already started the paperwork for adoption, which they don't need to sign. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, they're they're just they're lovely. And my my work has allowed me to meet a lot of interesting people. I'm. I also have through my Sherlockian stuff, my dearest friend in the world is also an actor, an American actor. Um, And so through him, I also know other networks of, of actors weirdly. Um, Okay. So I don't know. I just, I have a strange life. It's weird. (laughs) Um, And, and I love it. And I love all these people.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I have similar experiences of being sat at a table and seeing, people who maybe I've been fans of theirs for like 15 years or something and we're all just having dinner together and it's like, how the hell did that happen? (laughs) Right. Well, I guess they like swords, generally. That's how it tends to happen for me. It's like people from all all sorts of walks of life like swords and, you know, so I meet them that way and we become friends whatever. And, you know, I've gotten quite good at hiding the starstruck thing yeah yeah so like just just chill.
1: yeah <laughs> famous people want to be friends with people who treat them like people right uh you know they don't they don't want to they don't want to deal with you know fanboying and fangirling they have enough of that in their regular lives right um which is great i'm i i do not tend to be too prone to that uh, at least in their presence I apparently come off as like a, a competent human when I'm having conversations with them and then it's like I go home and I sit and you know okay. go yeah <laughs> sort of I squee in private <laughs> uh, the key of, to friendship with famous people is, is squeeing in private
0: yeah yeah and so, then maybe invite them onto your podcast every day and that's also good yes too. that helps <laughs> and sometimes they come um Okay, so you've done lots of different things, Um, so I'm not sure where this question is going to go, but what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet?
1: See, and this is a question that you put in the list of questions that you sent me well ahead of time.
0: I did, yeah. I did for all my guests.
1: Did I spend a lot of time thinking about it, or did I go, I'll bet by the time I get there, I'll just have a really, uh, a really good answer okay, to it. I can lend
0: you a really good answer if you like.
1: Sure, great.
0: Okay, okay. It is well when I get a good idea, I tend just to act on it immediately. So I don't really have any really good ideas that I haven't acted on. That's a good one. That's quite <laughs> about about a third, I would say, of my guests come out with some variation on that theme. So you well, can use that one if. What you like. if I
1: told you that I am in fact acting? on all of the good ideas I have right now, but right. I can't talk about them until, you know, the contracts are signed. How about that?
0: that that's even better because that has that kind of... very it's mystery. Uh, you don't know. Mis- Based on all of the and- things
1: I've talked about, the sword stuff, the theater stuff, the Sherlock Holmes stuff, you don't know. But when you see it on my Twitter, you'll go, that was it. That was one of the good ideas.
0: <laughs> well, I just had a brilliant idea. I think I think that you should... If you don't mind me just handing out tasks, go ahead. I think I think that you should create a Sherlock Holmes adaptation for the theatre that emphasizes sword fighting. Hmm. Put it all together in one place. Just one the theater, place. The theatre, the Sherlock right. Holmes, and the swords, all in one place. Boom. I I, I think you even You even know You even know A playwright Who might be willing To like Advise (laughs) on things Like structure Or
1: Yeah And some actors Who are pretty You know Pretty talented Yeah Um, Yeah I uh, I will I will bear it In mind You know um, There is of course Martial arts In Sherlock Holmes He's He's a uh, Bartitsu practitioner Though Conan Doyle uh, Misspelled it wrong Yeah Bartitsu yeah Uh, Boxer and expert single stick player, and when you are invested into the Baker Street Irregulars, um, which is this whole kind of black box process, there are only three hundred oh, really? members worldwide at any time, and it's it's really exclusive. Nobody knows what the criteria are to actually become a member. It's just okay. you kind of have to be found. Um, but when okay, you're invested, so they approach you, huh? They
0: approach, they approach you.
1: you. Yeah, you cannot okay. ask to be invited. To and the and you to the
0: you were approached.
1: Yeah. I am. I am an invested irregular. Yes. Uh, okay. All right.
0: Um,
1: but when you are invested. Uh, you are given an an investiture. In other words, you are given a a nom de plume that comes from the Sherlock Holmes canon somewhere. And the idea is in some way they believe you don't get to choose it. They choose it for you. The some way they believe it represents what you do, what you contribute to the Sherlock Holmes world or something about your personality or or whatever. So, you know, if you're a lawyer, you might be named after a lawyer, um, or something Mm -hmm. along those lines. My, my Sherlock Holmes investiture is single stick. Really? Yes, that's my BSI investiture name. That is the
0: best one of them it, all by the Isn't it mile. great? Yeah. Okay. Because right, a lot so of people is...
1: get saddled with a crap one, and there's nothing you can do about it. Like,
0: like <laughs> slippers.
1: Yes, yeah. yeah or, slippers. Or, or,
0: or Lestrade.
1: Oh, listen, <laughs> Don Hobbs. One of the, the great collectors. He had the, the world's largest collection of international Sherlock Holmes editions. Right. When he was invested as Inspector Lestrade, happiest day of his life. Really? Oh yeah. Well Lestrade is nobody's He's a major invested character. in Sherlock Holmes. Nobody is is Dr. Watson. Yeah. Um, so I think his investiture is the person who appears in the canon the most, and so he was pretty excited about that to actually,
0: when you look at it like that, that is actually pretty flattering.
1: Yeah, you don't. What yeah. you don't want to be invested as is like a character that is, I don't know, one from one of the worst stories, or one who like just dies uselessly or in infamy. Yeah. You know, those those things happen.
0: Yeah, you don't want to be a red shirt.
1: No, no, you don't want to be a red
0: shirt. Uh, okay. Now in the introduction. I did promise I would ask about the ninja stuff, and then we got completely off onto other things, <laughs> and I forgot. So, so um, the way I originally phrased this question is, um, do you enjoy creeping across rooftops and felling guards with throwing stars? Now, do you? To which the answer
1: is obviously yes. Doesn't
0: everybody? What fair? Okay. So, but, <laughs> but, but you put ninja in your Twitter bio, so
1: yes. So, uh, this was another one of those, I want to do something else to keep fit. And actually it it emerged from historical martial arts practice Mm -hmm. because we have, depending on where your audience is, they'll either know this television program or they won't, but there's a show here called American Ninja Warrior. There's probably a Ninja Warrior for every country. Basically it's. Adults running huge, scary obstacle courses. Right. They tend to be people who have gymnastics background or parkour background or rock climbing backgrounds. Uh, big, bulky, um, you know, athletes, American football players sometimes try, but they're not very good. It's usually yeah. people who are, um, you know. Uh, Life. Life, Yeah. But it has a lot to do with body control, and it's also problem-solving, much like HEMA is Mm -hmm. problem-solving. And we have a local, um, somebody who competes on the show, who lives near us, who came to Sword Carolina and said, I want to, I like to um, diversify my training and do lots of different sorts of things. Can I train with you guys a little bit that will help with my ninja training? And so he trained with us some. And in in fact, he actually filmed some of his um, like audition video one year with us. And he's a very nice guy. I was already a fan of the show. I liked watching it. Um, And then I learned that he and another couple who both also compete on the show and a fourth guy who is a, a parkour like professional parkour athlete, mm-hmm. the four of them opened a ninja gym.
0: So <laughs>
1: the the part of it is all like set up for parkour obstacles and, mm-hmm. you know, working on vaults and um, balance and laches and all that kind of flips everything. And then part of it is set up with all of these rotate this rotating um, bevy of obstacles, you know, where you're swinging from rings and you're climbing up walls and you're Mm -hmm. leaping from thing to thing. And again, being somebody who never felt like I was a natural athlete, it seemed like it was a really fun way to do some different kinds of strength training to the types that I do um, in HEMA. And uh, because I already knew one of the gym owners, I felt like I could you know, I was comfortable going in and saying, you know, sure. let's let's sign up for a couple of intro classes and see how it goes. And I really enjoyed it. So um, so now instead of having a regular gym membership where I run on a treadmill, I have a ninja gym membership where I <laughs> much, and, much better, much better. I go and and swing from ropes and, and stuff. You know, all the stuff that you hated in gym class when you were 13 is actually fun when you're, you know, Pushing forty and and uh, you don't feel like you have teenagers watching you. So well, I
0: think that's the last part of it is is the the character of the people watching and also the character of the instruction.
1: Mm-hmm. Is this is the whole ninja community is incredibly supportive. So you'll see that if you watch an episode of the television program, you'll see that they cross train a lot, that mm-hmm. they all root for each other. So even though they're technically competing for a limited number of Spots, you yeah. run the course by yourself, and you'll see that every time someone is running, all of their so so-called competitors will like switch in and wear their T-shirts and cheer for them. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, Coach them on the side and everything. Um, so it's okay. an incredibly supportive community, and even at the micro level, where you're at an individual ninja gym, it's very much that. I don't make friends easily. I made friends right away um at the Ninja Gym, because if you're trying something and you're not doing it very well, somebody will come over and show you how to do it better. And it's okay. your, you know, you can always go up to somebody else who's doing something and saying, hey, can I train with you? Can I try that too? Or can you show me how to do that? And it doesn't matter. Sometimes, you know, because of the the people who run this gym are part of, have been part of this community for so long, some of the really elite athletes from the television show come and train at this gym. And if you go and ask them, can you show me how to do X, they will stop what they are doing and show you how to do even a basic skill. They'll cheer for you on the sideline if you're doing a, you know, if you're trying something. It's just, it's a very supportive place.
0: That's fantastic. And I have to wonder, why don't we have a ninja gym in Ipswich in the UK? Well, you can always stop one. No, I see. I see. (laughs) I have, I have absolutely no flair for that sort of acrobatics. I've done a parkour class once, and I really mm-hmm. enjoyed it, and I was absolutely terrible at it. Um, if it... It was in London, so it's like two hours away, so I wasn't going to do that regularly. Um, if there was one locally, I would probably go fairly regularly, because it's... I like the idea of it, but... Yeah, yeah I am... No, I, I, I don't have the the aptitude for that kind of training yeah like and st- of
1: course you can Sorry, of course find a, a like a local um like an outdoor playground
0: mm-hmm.
1: a lot of those things can be adapted for the same kind of training
0: sure and actually one of the one of the things that kept me fit when the children were little is when they were playing on timing frames and whatnot. I was always up there playing with them
1: mm-hmm Um, It's really the same thing. It's like a playground for grownups. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite similar to that though. It helps a lot. So much of it is technique. Uh, Mm. and so much of it is stuff where you can really hurt yourself if you do it the wrong way. Uh, it does help to have people who know what they're doing.
0: Right. Like I, I did, I did that (laughs) parkour class with a guy called Dan Edwards. who has been on the show. I forget which episode number, but I'll stick in the show notes, Um, who is like a world-class parkour instructor of instructors. And Mm -hmm. it was great. And he's my sort of age and ridiculously fit and flexible and does these amazing things. And I just look at it and go, oh, my God. (laughs) If I hadn't spent the last 20 years doing swords... I might be able to do that, but no. I, my idea of a sword fight is I stand still and my opponent runs their face onto my point. That's the perfect sword fight.
1: That's ideal, I, yeah.
0: That's absolutely ideal. I want to move as little as possible and get the job done with the absolute minimum of movement on my part. Can I,
1: can I make a slight amendment to that for my ideal sword fight? Go on then. Is that I leave my sword somewhere and go have a pint somewhere and my opponent then impales himself in my absence.
0: Ah, well, you see, I, would, I actually like... Being there when they do it because oh, you know, I'm a bit yeah, of a well, scientist.
1: You're a sick man.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: can we can we compromise? Can we have them impale themselves on our sword, but also be drinking a beer?
0: Yes, absolutely, or even right. sipping a glass of chardonnay if that's your preference.
1: Excellent. Yeah, um, nice, so... a nice scotch would be my, my ideal.
0: Well, I've literally just come back from Isla, where my my oh, dad, okay. my brother, and I we went around the distilleries of Isla and just just to make sure that they're. Production was still up to scratch, and I can happily confirm that it is still up to scratch.
1: Oh, that's good to know. It's important (laughs) to check every once in a while, though.
0: Absolutely, because otherwise they might let their standards slip, and then where would we be? And we wouldn't even find out for like 15 years.
1: I know, and then it's too late to do anything about it. Right,
0: exactly. Um, So, you're a a Scotch person. That is is good to know, should I ever come to your part of the world. Um, Okay, my last question. Yep. My last question. Somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend the money?
1: As somebody who has been an educator for most of my career, mm-hmm. I would say that um, funding uh, more historical martial arts programs for younger people, particularly if they can be tied to school athletics. So for instance, you know, uh, if public school, you know, when I was in high school a zillion years ago, you're required to take a PE class. Yeah. uh, And it wrote, they rotated us through volleyball and softball and track and field. And I hated all of it. And yeah, um, and it and it put me off of not just those sports which I was terrible at anyway, but it put me off of PE. It put me off of kind of thinking about kind of myself exercise. in terms of being an athlete. Yeah, it put me off of exercise. I because of my bad experiences there, it took me until I had been doing Hema for I don't know four years before one day I looked at myself and I went, oh, I think I'm an athlete. I'd never used that word to describe myself before Uh, until, you know, I was in my mid thirties. I still do. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's just not right. It's, it's because we're so put off by our options, particularly if they're all blocked in. So if I had a million dollars, would I fund, what would I do? I would fund, um, I would seed HEMA into particularly secondary school phys ed programs. So providing instruction, providing equipment, Um, not as an extracurricular activity, but as actually part of the PE curriculum. Like you could do HEMA instead of doing volleyball.
0: You know, in my um, secondary school, where where I went when I was 13, Mm -hmm. um, the year I arrived, after I'd been there for one term and had to do bloody rugby, standing outside in the freezing cold, in the rain, running after some stupid inflated leather bag, they made, because you ha- everyone had to do a, what they call a major sport. And at the time, the major sports were, um I think, rugby, hockey, cricket, those sorts of things. And they weren't all available every term because they come in seasons. Mm-hmm. And um, after I'd been there for a term, they made fencing a major sport, oh. which meant that I didn't have to do any of that stupid running around like a moron. And I could just stab people in the face and chest and various other places um, all afternoon instead. And that, honestly, if that hadn't happened, I probably would not have just had the will to keep, keep up the fencing. And it's when I got to university and did sport fencing that that led into doing historical martial arts because me and my friends got frustrated with sport fencing because it's not very realistic. And so it went mm-hmm. from there, right? So that one decision that they made at Oakham in 1986 or seven, seven must have been, was like a critical point in me actually ending up being a professional historical martial arts instructor, which is weird to think. So I am entirely in favor of your program. And if I had the money, I would give it to you. But the question is, how do you go about doing it?
1: Uh, I'm not sure what the, the system is in the UK, in the US, you would have to start by, um, probably you would have to start by lobbying the government, uh, to, to make it an accepted part of the curriculum.
0: So, so in this country, that means become a billionaire first and then ring up (laughs) your mate Boris. Right. Okay.
1: Right. Yeah. As, as Steve Martin says, I can teach you how to be a millionaire. All right. First, get a million dollars. Then. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So but but it I mean, you can put together, I mean, the mechanisms for lobbying government. Obviously, it helps a lot if you already have a lot of money, um, Mm -hmm. if you're, you know, well established and you have a lot of friends. But you can, in fact, do, um, you know, groundwork. In those sorts of things. Um, We do have people locally who, for instance, have started similar programs in secondary schools if they're private schools because they're not governed by the same curricular um, requirements and regulations. But I would specifically like to focus on public schools. Absolutely. uh, As somebody who supports public education um, top to bottom, I would think that's, you know, that's really where we want to do it. And I think you would also find that starting it at that level of early teens. Is also going to help with some of the issues we have in terms of of diversity in HEMA. Oh, sure. You know, we tend to be a very white male community. Um, and if you had something like, you know, everybody thinks swords are cool. So if you give you give a 14-year-old a, a sword, you know, they're not going to see themselves as someone who's not welcome in the community if the other people around them who are also with swords look like them. And then they graduate into the the sort of broader adult HEMA community and they already feel like this is a place where they belong. I think that would help a lot.
0: Uh, To my mind, the biggest stumbling block is actually training the teachers to be able to teach it. Because we're talking about thousands of schools. Mm -hmm. And we don't have thousands of people who – I would feel comfortable putting up in front of a class full of kids. I mean, personally, I don't even teach kids generally. I have yeah. kids Kids in my adult classes, absolutely fine. And if they're comfortable there, they're welcome. Um, but, and I have like various instructors of mine have their, have kids classes in their clubs because they have yep. people in the clubs who are able to, um, you know, who are able to run a kids class effectively, but the, the skill is the skill set is different. So, yep. so we're going to need a lot more than a million dollars to train up thousands of people to become. Yes, I think to a to
1: million choose. dollars gets us maybe a pilot program in a in yeah. a couple of school. <laughs> you know, pick a pick a district, pilot the program, show how it can be done. I mean, the other side of it, of course, is that at that level. Because of the the time limit, that is, your kids graduate out, Mm -hmm. um, you would have probably a set curriculum that repeats once a year, right? Yeah. Uh, Something like that. Um, And you probably aren't going to get your kids into, for instance, free play in their first year. That's not going to be a safe thing for them to do. Um, So. The level of expertise that the instructor has to have in historical isn't, martial arts isn't, that that high. Yeah. isn't as high as it is for, to run a, a club for adults, I think. Um, True. You know, it would, it, it would have to be something that your your regular PE teacher who teaches you, you know, they're not a professional rugby player either, but they can provide you enough information about rugby to get through it. Yeah. You know, same thing with cricket they're going to have to jump mm. from thing to thing they would you would just add in um you know that level of knowledge
0: yeah huh yeah that's, that's a tricky it's tricky the thing is though again dan edwards i mentioned earlier he has got parkour into some schools Mm-hmm. um so maybe i need to basically get dan to give up all his leaping about and take up sores (laughs) properly again.
1: Listen, you can only do that for so long before you have broken every bone in your body before all of your joints give out.
0: Actually, actually, honestly, I think the way Dan trains, that's probably not true. Mm. Because, because I mean, he's my age, I'm 48 and he's like a year older than me or a year younger, probably really close in age. And I asked him what he does for his joints. And he said, that the way he trains is so low impact and is so generally good for him that he doesn't actually have any joint problems at all, and that's for somebody of our age, like almost fifty. That's really unusual. So Yeah,
1: it's it's when you try a new a new trick and you land on your head.
0: Oh, oh, sure, injuries. But then, yeah, I, he. Hmm. I'm sure I'm he doesn't
1: to... land on his head very often.
0: No, <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't. But yeah, it's, the thing is, that, you know, we all have our in, in our heads. We have this, you know, wipe out videos from YouTube or whatever, where people are doing a parkour trick and they do hideous things to themselves, like mm-hmm. like hitting uh, the edge, the top edge of a brick wall with their kidneys yep. at yep. god awful speed or whatever. He's just like, no, they will never walk again. <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah. But but I think actually that's not most parkour practitioners.
1: No, though I will say that I've seen a lot of people rotating in and out of my ninja gym with, uh, with various injuries (laughs) themselves. And a lot of them are really elite parkour athletes. And you know, there's a, there's a fearlessness involved in what they do that sometimes borders on stupidity. Uh, (laughs) But this is from somebody who plays with swords. So, you know, you right. can't me.
0: And, and the thing is, you know, every activity has a risk profile. And, you know, if you roll the dice often enough, you are going to end up with some accident no matter what you do. I mean, you know, it's dangerous to take a shower. Really, no one should do it because you could slip and hit your head.
1: You know, you're right. You know? You're right. Um,
0: you're right. And, I yeah, agree with my, that. My, my current obsession is flying planes, which is very, very, very dangerous. Because if you make one critical mistake in the air, you're going to die, right? I mean, if you make the critical Uh, mistake- But have you
1: died yet?
0: No, no, but the thing is, (laughs) is, pilot training is all about how to avoid getting into those situations and what to do when the unpredictable disasters happen. Like, what happens if you're taking off and your engine quits?
1: Hmm. What
0: do you do, right? You have about- Two or three seconds to push the stick forward a little bit to drop the nose, or you'll stall. And if you stall at that height, you're just going to hit the ground because you can't recover from the stall quickly enough. So you drop the nose to maintain flying speed, find a place to park the plane, and just land it as best you can. That's and also turn off all the bits that might make the engine catch fire when you when you get to the ground, and you have a reasonable chance of surviving that, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's like, mm-hmm. and then you know what do you do if you, if your engine catches fire when you're at three thousand feet or whatever? Right? Like, and I'm, and I'm, my instructor's showing me this thing. I'm like, are you seriously telling me that there's such a significant risk of this engine catching fire that we actually have, like, properly worked out drills for what to do when it happens? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> hmm.
1: <laughs> I need but, to reassess my interests.
0: Yeah. No, it's, just, it's too, no. honestly. No. no. I mean, it's no. the same
1: thing. Like, uh,
0: it's, it's too much fun. It's,
1: it is. Well, it's the same thing with, with Hema. I mean, we've, we've had various injuries. My, my right knee is so screwed up. I can't even. Really? That's just, that's just, uh, I was fighting in a tournament against, I okay. was in an, an open longsword tournament. Yeah. And my opponent was taller,
0: mm-hmm.
1: younger, and more male. <laughs> okay. And, uh, we were sort of, halfway to 3 quarters of the way through our bout and I was significantly ahead and I think that bothered him and he went for a he went for a kind of desperate moment we got locked in high which I generally yeah. try to avoid as the usually shorter opponent yeah. um and he thought the thing to do would be to throw me and instead of doing it in a safe way he put his entire weight against the side of ah, and, uh, and just <laughs> That's not ID good. Sideways. Yeah, no, it wasn't great.
0: Ow. It wasn't great. I mean, was that so, was that an ambulance job, or did you manage to get to uh, the hospital on your own?
1: I went to the hospital for X-rays once I got home from the tournament. Okay. I um I didn't I didn't go then. Uh, we you know we had an EMT on site and right. um they could assess that it wasn't it wasn't a break. Yeah. Um, so there. You know, it wasn't going to be something that going to the hospital could have solved. right now, yeah. Uh, So, basically, uh, I applied ice, painkiller, and alcohol, and (laughs) then, uh, and swore a lot. So, that was, that was, but it still doesn't bend quite right. And I've, re you know, once you injure a joint like that once, you you continue to kind of re-injure it. So, I've re-injured it during ninja training. Um, Okay because I was doing an obstacle called um, the jumping spider. So you jump onto a mini trampoline and yeah. then into like a narrow corridor, you kind of have to open up like a starfish. And oh, you, right. You move through it. Um, and I opened up, I opened to to grab it with my legs um, too soon. Instead of, instead of the impact coming out, the impact went, my body forward. weight took, took, went forward against my knee, which if I had, you know, two good knees would have been fine except that knee was already weakened from the previous injury so so it's probably will never be quite right again and it does make a lot of fun noises when i go up and down stairs
0: but Do do you have a practice for looking after it
1: uh if i'm going into any kind of a um if I'm going to spar or I'm going to be in a tournament, I always um, brace it, just okay. because I don't want it to. Uh... If I'm doing controlled training, I tend to be aware of where my knees are more. But when you're in the mm-hmm. adrenaline rush of a of a of a bout, um, you know your brain is is only yeah. applying as much to you know each part of your your body as it can, and so. Uh, keeping it braced to make sure that I don't accidentally hyperextend it.
0: Uh, yeah. but No, I mean, because, you know, I've, I've been doing this for a living for a really long time. And, you know, my joints are not particularly good. So I have an entire kind of maintenance system I do on all the joints I can reach. Hmm. Um, I would recommend you have a look at, um, I have a free course on my courses platform called um, human maintenance and it includes mm-hmm. a section on how to look after your knees, like regular knee massage and basic stretches and knee mobility stuff, which you might find useful. Great. Uh, Cause yeah, anyway, you know, your, your injuries are not unique. Lots of, lots of people have similar, <laughs> sadly mm-hmm. have similar stories. Um, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of maintenance, and mm-hmm. there are exercises you can do that may, maybe makes it less likely for it to happen again. Yeah, and can encourage it to heal. So, I anyway. know. great. Have, have a good, and and if for if sure. you have a look at it, and you have any questions, whatever, feel free just to ask me, and I will happily like talk you through it. We'll do. Um, Thank you. But <laughs> so. so Swords are technically more dangerous than ninja stuff, then, based on the evidence of your knee. Uh,
1: well, I've been doing swords a lot longer than ninja. Okay. So, you know, I don't... I'm not sure that that's fair. And it also depends on what you do. So, I'm not as adept at the ninja stuff. Um, right. There are a lot of things I can't do just because I don't quite have the upper body strength for them yet. Um, you, you. I like the yet.
0: I like yet. the yet. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a... It's a, makes a <laughs> fundamental difference to what's going on in your brain, right? I'm not strong enough to do this. I'm not strong enough to do this yet. Totally different thing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and with the ninja stuff, there's a certain point where you hit a ceiling if you can't do pull ups. Yeah, and, of course. And um, women's bodies are just not
0: as good structured at structured
1: differently. So pull ups are harder, um, so they're mm-hmm. they're harder to get, um, and. You know, I can now do a handful of pull-ups. Hey, well done. Thank you. Took, I can do about like, four
0: on a good day. <laughs> yeah, it took, it took like two
1: years of really focusing on it to be able sure. to do like two. Um, yeah. But they're they're gettable. Uh, but because of that, there are there are obstacles and things that are potentially more dangerous where I could hurt myself that right. I actually can't try yet.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. So
1: you know, I'll I'll hit the high injury stuff.
0: <laughs> but that, a that's years. the thing though the more advanced you are the more likely you are to get hurt because you're doing more dangerous things it's, just, it's true mm-hmm. for pretty much everything like most injuries I think happen at a fairly intense level of tournament fencing
1: mm-hmm. just
0: because everyone is like going faster and harder and so the risks are naturally higher um, yeah. and I think that the same thing is true if, you know, if you're doing like anything gymnastic it's the more advanced you are the more speed and power is involved and so when things do go wrong they, they go much more catastrophically wrong so
1: yeah on the upside with the ninja stuff I don't I don't compete in it right. um, and I have no wish to compete in it so I'm never quite going I'm not ever doing it for speed
0: right well, that helped. Which
1: a lot of people, that's where a lot of the injuries happen is where people sure. are like, oh, you know, I only have so much time to get through this obstacle. It's really like a, it's a, it's a really intense game of the floor is lava, right?
0: right. Where you're trying to get yeah. through all these
1: obstacles without touching the ground. Um, and at a certain point you go, oh, I can't hang on to this thing anymore. I'm really going to have to fling myself hard to make it to that,
0: yeah. you know,
1: safe spot. I just go, I don't, I don't need to do that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Next all time right. I'll just... yeah yeah look after your joints. thank you very much for joining me today Ashley it's been lovely talking to you it's
1: my pleasure thank you for having me
0: thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ashley you can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast while you are there you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book sword fighting for writers game designers and martial artists I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash guy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque Harp Accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to none other than Neil Stevenson, the author, futurist, tech geek and swordsman whose works include Cryptonomicon, Eves, The Diamond Age, Snow Crash, Fall or Dodge in Hell and whose latest book Termination Shock has a whole bunch of stuff in it about Sikh martial arts. I should perhaps mention, though, of course, that his main claim to fame is that he wrote the preface to my own book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists, which you can get for free on my website. Marvelous. So you definitely don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have a minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week.